Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp Tech. I'm your host, Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? I am doing... I, I, I'm okay. I feel a little disappointed. I'm going to be totally honest. Sharp Tech readers send tons and tons of questions. <laughs> so we never, we're never like wishing for more questions. That's definitely the case. But we did put out a call, albeit only 12 hours, for more off-topic, off-the-beaten-road, fun episode questions. Gotta say, we have a list of fairly serious questions here. Good chance to catch up on topics. But I don't know. I, I Maybe my audience is just a little... This is my fault. This is a me problem. I've cultivated an audience as a little too serious and not 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 quite as zany uh, as, say, say, the GOAT, the GOAT listeners, who, who definitely would know how to answer this. Well, I would say we could have done a better job amplifying the call to listeners because we waited until like the final 30 seconds of the last podcast and gave (laughs) them 12 hours. Which dropped 12 hours. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. Strategically, maybe some things we will do differently the, the next time we do this, like the Christmas mailbag. But, you know, it is what it is, and we do have a lot of different questions to hit today. We, 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 we have a lot to catch up on. We should be clear, and normally it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But given the way things are changing online these days, we are recording on Saturday. We are going to release this on a Monday. If anything happened in 48 hours since we recorded this, we are not taking responsibility for any of it. Exactly. I have no idea whether Twitter is going to be a, a going concern this time next oh, week. Uh, actually, you know what? This is why I get myself in trouble. I <laughs> I recorded a dithering Friday morning Taiwan time. So Thursday, like early Thursday evening in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, put out the thing. Look, by the time we release this in eight hours, you know, every you know things might have changed. And... What I did expect to change was the, the people online <laughs> and the media in particular to go so far in the other direction. The overreaction and hysteria was unbelievable. And it's like, no, Twitter is not going to fall over in the next 12 hours. That's like, that's not, that's not going to, it was unbelievable. And uh, anyhow, I would not get myself in trouble talking on Saturday, but you know, in, in all seriousness, yeah, that that was the. Uh, it, it, this is the problem with with recording any degree of early these days. You, 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 your adjustment might come from both sides. Well, and look, in all seriousness, as a mainstream news consumer, it's a little bit bewildering sometimes with some of these Twitter updates and everything. Like I was sitting there Thursday night watching all of these people eulogize Twitter and wondering to myself, like. Is the site really just going to cease to exist? Like, it shouldn't be that complicated to keep it online. Like, an, an outage would be reasonable, but I, I don't anticipate this just, like, disappearing from our lives. And I, I don't know whether whether that was naive, too. Like, maybe it could just disappear one day. I don't know. No, I mean, of, of course it, it could. Anything could happen, right? I mean, I think if, if we should have any expectation about the world today, it's that anything's possible, right? Like, if you didn't learn that lesson six years ago, then I'm, I'm not sure when you're, you're going to learn it, to say the least. Uh, but, 
you know, part, part of the reason why Twitter would have so many employees is because there's high degrees of redundancy and there's systems and processes that have been built up. And to some extent, that can definitely go too far and ossify a company and make it hard to move and do whatever. And you have to schedule like multiple teams to cover multiple things. People take vacations. People go out X, Y, Z. But part of that means like the whole point is there is some degree of redundancy in the system. And also like software is weird. On one hand, software breaks all the time. It absolutely does need to be updated. And there's weird bugs that something will go wrong and uh, some server and some closet needs to be kicked. For sure, that's the case. But it's also the case that the whole concept of software is it just sort of keeps like you build it once and it keeps running and it's funny because on one hand to, to people who are like well, it was like no like something like a uh, complex service i mean i run a very small service in passport and stuff breaks all the time like it's definitely the case that stuff breaks it's also the case that you don't need seven thousand people to keep twitter <laughs> up like, like that, that's 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 just that's not that's never been a sort of realistic assumption and it's funny because you feel like you know, people are handing Elon Musk like there's this tendency to set the bar for your enemy as low as humanly possible. <laughs> and it's like literally at this point, Musk is a success if Twitter does not disappear off the face of the <laughs> earth within 48 hours. Like it just seems like not very good game theory there. If they're here sort of setting that up of, of like what what's a success and what's it's not. It's true. He's able to look triumphant as long as Twitter exists once we get past Thanksgiving. No, you wrote out you wrote out fr- Friday morning and everyone's like, wow, that was a bender last <laughs> night. <laughs> it's like, like you, you literally just gave Musk a ton of credibility literally by Twitter continuing to exist for like eight hours. It's like that, that doesn't seem like a very good strategic thinking. But I, I mean, it's funny because there's a broader Twitter question. I put something in my article earlier this week. And every time I say something along these lines, I have some small group of subscribers that always get really, really upset because I where you know, basically insinuating that I'm not sure Twitter has been a net good for the world. And there is a certain segment of folks that's like, no, it, it's all good. You know, to even question good. that is is bad. Yeah. And the this hysteria is exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like, I, I just don't think it's good for anyone to get this sort of mob mentality. And by mob mentality, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying in very broad strokes, everyone worked up about one thing. Right. Because, I mean, and it's it's very, it's disheartening. You, you saw a lot of people in the eulogy saying like, oh, Twitter's become so essential for journalism. I'm like, I know that's the problem, right? Like there's there's this shortcut of sensational stories at my fingertips all the time and I can just do a search, search.twitter.com, and I have all the sources and quotes that I need. And it's like, well, what was so clearly lacking last night, and it, it was someone to explain how do large distributed web services work? What would it look like if Twitter was floundering? Like, what would be some small things on the edges that would fail? Because that's what, how it would happen. It would degrade. It's not going to, like tip over overnight this isn't 2010 towards a ruby on rails applications you're gonna fail well like it's like there has been real work on the technical back end to make it more more resilient and that was just non-existent and it's depressing as someone there's a question i think later on here about how i get news and stuff like that it's depressing as someone who's always stated look i'm not a journalist i'm not out there reporting Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't want to break news. I rely on and value journalists and and, and, the, and the news ecosystem. And 
people are out there with their silly avatars and their silly names flying off the handle on Twitter, and then they're going on their you know esteemed publication and trying to write a serious article. It's like I just saw you on Twitter. Like, well, why, <laughs> why, why, why am I going to believe or anything that you're saying here? And then it's doubled down with you have by definition thousands of people that just lost their job who are want revenge, want to dump on things that do know stuff. And there, there is a sense when you're in a company, everything always seems terrible, right? Like it, everything's always a disaster. You have no idea how this is a going concern. And there's always going to be stuff that you can dump that, that, that furthers the narrative. And it, 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 and when you're in this mindset, again, this mob-like mindset, and I'm trying to use mob, maybe mob's not the right word because it has a pejorative sense. So, like, th- there's a just this sort of mass hysteria. It's, it snowballs. Everything snowballs, and there's escalating rhetoric, and and it ends and up it distorting reality. And again, and again, and again. And I'm not sure that's good for society, and I think that's a reasonable question to raise. Is it good to have... One network. This isn't a social media problem. This is a Twitter problem. Twitter mm. is it, it's all it's all it's all the media. It's all the way sitting in one place, whipping themselves up into frenzy after frenzy. And I just don't know that that's particularly good for anyone. Well, basic infrastructure question here. Your point on software. So if there were an outage, it's not like they would just you know shut the doors at Twitter and give up and just not fix it, right? That, that was the part that I didn't really understand when all these people were u- eulogizing the end of Twitter. It's like, it's not a building that's going to burn to the ground and can't be replaced for however many years. It's not like the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Like, there are ways to fix things when they break. And that's one of the benefits of having software. Well, well, one of the downsides of software is Literally anything is possible. So you can definitely spin up a a scenario where something breaks on Twitter, something goes down, you can't get access to XYZ because you didn't even realize you didn't access the person who had the access password or key or token or whatever it is, as long as it's gone or whatever it might be. Um, Like, so it's theoretically possible that Twitter could go down and never come back up. The probability and likelihood, to your point, is exceptionally low, and and, and you and so it's, and so it's I'm not, reading. It's hard reactions. to talk about. It's and hard I, to talk about on Twitter because there will be people that are writing these threads. I used to work in, in the infrastructure for a large company. Here's all the things that could happen, and it's like, yes, that's true. All those things could happen. The question is the the, the probability of them happening, and then you get on there and you're like. Shit, I only have 280 characters. I can't act like I can't actually explain the nuance. Sure would be nice if the people responsible whose jobs are to write about this would have any interest in exploring the nuance. Right. But they're not. They're searching for Twitters and posting tweets. And, and uh yeah. So I mean, <laughs> again, is it theoretically possible by the time this podcast posts on Monday that Twitter is down and gone forever? Sure. Anything's yeah. possible. Again, anything is possible. Is it likely? No, uh, it's not likely. But I don't know. Like, maybe that's this is the to tie it all together is we live in a world of nuance. We live in a world of gray. And Twitter just systematically erases that. And it drives everyone to the absolute extreme of everything. Either Elon is cleaning out 
culture and he's going to reform the entire tech industry by showing Twitter could run with the, you know a tenth of the people that it had and every tech company is to take note and there's going to be hundreds of thousands of entitled tech workers on the street. That's one acceptable opinion. The other acceptable opinion is uh, it's a total disaster. Like He has no idea what he's doing. Twitter is going to be dead tomorrow. And the answer is probably in the middle like it is every other single time. Yes. Well, flattening reality into good and evil serves no one. And that's Sure, it does. Uh, it serves people on Twitter who want retweets and likes. That's true. Yeah. If you're cloud and, chasing, and, it's and, a really effective strategy. But life is messy. Reality is messy and complicated. And that's okay. Uh, just to put a finer point on some of what you're saying there and add my own thoughts at the end of this impromptu Twitter segment. Number one, <laughs> <laughs> a, a listener to my basketball podcast, Greatest of All Talk reached out to me last week and his girlfriend works at Twitter and she was one of the people who opted out after Elon sent his hardcore ultimatum and she was just like, I'm, I'm out. It's been a wild couple of weeks here. And uh, he just hearing her experience, it sounds like it's genuinely very chaotic behind the scenes at Twitter. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for <laughs> like, sure. How could it not be? It's absolutely an indictment of Elon Musk. And Elon, the more I've learned about him, I mean, there have been just so many unforced errors along the way over the last month of Elon Musk and Twitter. It's kind of mind boggling. Um, and I should just say for the record that like, if I were out in public confronted with someone like Elon Musk or Elon Musk himself. I mean, like he's not the type of guy I would want to hang out with uh, under really any circumstances. But as I look at some of the coverage, it's so unbalanced that I find myself like sort of sympathizing with Musk and (laughs) sort of rooting for Musk. And that's a weird place to be. I don't feel great about it in the slightest, but that's what happens when you have this like escalating rhetoric and hysteria that just spins out of control, you can't help but sort of push back in your own mind and be like, well, maybe Musk is going to figure this out. <laughs> Let's wait and see. Like, I don't know. I, I'm no, not- this is this is classic, Andrew, for if you people who don't listen to your basketball podcast, Ben Golliver, the other Ben in your life, loves to describe how you will always inevitably zag when other people I are can't help it yeah and, and it was, so this is the most predictable take just knowing you personally <laughs> but I, I don't think you're alone right like i mean honestly it's like what what was the best possible way on friday night it's like how could we completely transform public support and sympathy for elon musk in the next eight hours Let's lose our freaking minds and say that Twitter's <laughs> going to go under and see if it's a, well, see if it still exists the next morning. <laughs> it, it wasn't just that. It was claiming that Twitter might go under and then, you know, sanitizing the Twitter experience as we look back at the last 10 years and talking right, about Twitter how magical it was. Perfect. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, so anyways... The beginning of this podcast was more serious than we intended, but we're going to keep it light today and moving on from Twitter. The rest of the podcast will be a Twitter free zone. I don't want to let Sharp Tech become like a Twitter podcast going forward. There's it's enough- very hard to escape. Well, I mean, there is this question that, that that you're obviously going to skip and I'm going to reinsert about highly risky business models for companies and like, why do I have one for Twitter and not anybody else? And I do think there is an aspect, just sort of full disclosure. Remember what I thought about Twitter's business for literally years, since the beginning of the trajectory. Like yeah. Twitter, 
Twitter is like the most important tech service for me. Like I'm on there all the time. I get so much information from that. It's tremendously valuable. When I say I'm not sure if Twitter's net impact on society has been positive, it's been unbelievably positive for me. And maybe I saw like a total elitist saying it's great for me, but not for the masses. But that's kind of how I think, to be honest. And so like there's like I thought about what can make this a going concern for a very, very long time. So that's that that's number one. Uh, but number two, just the there probably is a bit of me that's like, look, is it going to be the worst thing for the world if Twitter goes away? Is it actually good to have this digital cage match where everyone's on there drawing the sharpest friend enemy distinctions possible and then browbeating everyone to either be on either one side or the other? Is that actually good? Probably not. Is it entertaining? Right. Unbelievably entertaining. Is it informative? Absolutely. Can you garner information and ideas that you can't get anywhere else without question. It would be a massive blow to me personally, professionally. There's a question later on about how I, what I research would be a huge blow mm-hmm. if Twitter went away. But there maybe is a bit where there's a part of me that's like, well, roll the dice, try a subscription <laughs> model, because you know what? If it goes sideways, <laughs> maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, I mean, the stakes, who who can say what this is going to turn into? And honestly, we're walking a, a real high wire here trying to guess where Twitter is going to be by the time this posts hours. next week. Yeah. yeah, who the hell knows? Uh, disclaimer, don't hold us to anything we just said. But in any event, let's keep it moving to the rest of the tech world. Kirk says, rank the tech you hate by your willingness to use that technology in the event of an emergency. So I came up with a quick list here, Ben. First on my list, LinkedIn, the website that has just (laughs) never made sense to me. And I was forced to join when I entered the legal world. And I just, I could never put any time or energy into LinkedIn and joined it. Very begrudgingly, but um, that's number one on my list because ultimately, you know, it's not the end of the world. Like if you if you email me one day and say you need to get LinkedIn if you're going to be a member of the Stratechery family here, I would sign up. I would just never use it. I rarely, if ever, pay any attention to Stratechery's uh, visits or website stats. I, I mainly check it like once a year when I do my end of the year articles and I, I, I list where like the top five articles that were read in the year or things like that. Which is, by the way, one of the beauties of the subscription model is like I, I've never there's no one in the world more untethered from page clicks uh, than me. I would like to think <laughs> at least that is like making money from the web. But one thing that is always shocking is the amount of traffic that LinkedIn drives. It really does. Oh my god! Uh, and, really? And, uh, it, oh yeah, much larger than Facebook for me. I mean, uh, I mean, different sites vary in the different things. I mean, Elon did put that tweet out that Twitter drives the most traffic, which is for most sites not true at all. <laughs> like Twitter is very very tiny for Stratechery. It has traditionally been large. Uh, it's it's gotten less. Uh, I do think that Twitter for a few years has been fading. Um, definitely, it, it, they, Twitter's part of the responsibility for this. They, if you have a link in a tweet, they don't promote it very much. And Interesting. Which, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's this is what what happens. Like, you want to keep everyone on site. You want to keep showing them ads. Like, there's this nice view of the world that Google propagated. Oh, it would be nice if we just kick people off, and then they'll they'll see where we're a great 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 resource in the end. People realize, well, we could make more money if we keep them here and show ads. And and this has been a problem for Twitter is it's better to keep people on Twitter getting mad and seeing ads 
than it is to provide real utility, get a link, they go somewhere else and read it, and maybe they don't come back. And um, so that's definitely been an issue. But the other issue, actually, I, I might have mentioned this before, but as Stratechery has become much more podcast-centric, and I mean not just Sharp Tech, but Stratechery itself is recorded as a podcast, and you mm-hmm. can listen to it. And a huge number of my listeners or my my subscribers now listen and no one shares a podcast, right? That's one of the challenges that yeah. we're trying to figure out. That's why we have a software component. There will be more features coming that make, you know, around sharing and things on those lines because it is a hard problem to solve. But you don't finish reading a daily update say, this is so great. I'm going to go to Twitter now and find the link to the article and post it. Whereas if you're reading in an email, it's like, oh, just click a button and then you can share it to Twitter, X, Y, Z. So, mm-hmm. um, but it does turn out, sorry, this is a long, long roundabout. <laughs> All along, LinkedIn has been sh- I'm shockingly shocked by this. I can't believe LinkedIn is actually a meaningful traffic driver for you. Meaningful is maybe pushing it to be honest, okay. but it's, <laughs> it's it's always been higher than Facebook, and and it's it's been surprising in that regard. And I mean, you look at the numbers. Microsoft makes a decent amount of money off of LinkedIn advertising, not just LinkedIn like the recruiting stuff. But, like, there are people that go there, and there is a feed of content, and people check it out, and there's mm. ads in that feed, and they make money. Uh, again, uh, not not what I do, personally, but uh, <laughs> it's, definitely, it's definitely a resource that exists on the internet. Okay, well, number two on my list, Microsoft Excel. Um, I really what? admire the people who are great at Microsoft Excel. I'm sure 98% of our Microsoft Excel? are great at Microsoft Excel. I just look at it, and it, it all feels very overwhelming. There's all these different shortcuts that... No, Microsoft the, Excel is the number one programming environment in the world. Everyone, you're programming when you do Microsoft Excel, it's just like asking for errors and there's no way to debug it and it's a total mess but everyone does it i know i know and it's very useful for lots of people but every time i look at it all i see is like a jumble of cells and a pain in the ass trying to figure out how to get it to do what i need it to do um so i'm just not an excel person but i don't feel that strongly about it that's why it's number two on my list well maybe my addition to this list is microsoft word which, uh, <laughs> Which I, I can't, <laughs> I can't stand. Uh, I hate, uh, you know, I don't, if I wanted to format something, Microsoft, I would do it myself. I don't, I don't need help. I write in plain text mm. all the time, but I'm looking like at a, a Microsoft psychopath. Word document right now <laughs> because you work in Microsoft Word and I'm, I'm happy to accommodate you. So between yeah. the two of us, we really have a glowing sort of endorsement of the Microsoft Office suite. Look, man, you've been very accommodating and I really appreciate your begrudging embrace of Microsoft Word here in 2022. I, I'm just glad that you like Microsoft products because I am definitely uh, out in the wilderness in like for Stratechery, we use Office 365 or Microsoft 365, whatever it's called. We don't use Google Docs, which I dislike. I don't like Google Docs. I don't Docs. like Google Docs either, yeah. So the for sure the if you have need two people working in a dock at the exact same time, okay, fine. Yes, it's it's the best alternative. <laughs> if you want to do actually be productive and have any sort of like teamwork when it comes to things like managing shared inboxes, for example, or different people doing different things, like Google stuff is so rudimentary. It it yeah, I this is definitely one of my more contrarian takes, but uh give give me Give me a Microsoft 365 subscription over a Google Docs subscription for sure. Yeah, well, I 100% agree with you. And I haven't yet pushed Microsoft Word comments on you. That's a big thing in the legal profession. (laughs) And I found them very useful. Um, In any event, 
Number three on my list, Amazon Alexa. I would feel like a complete moron if I were ever talking to Alexa in my house. I don't anticipate ever using it, um, but I don't hate it as much as number four, which is a meta headset. I can't (laughs) really imagine any scenario. Again, the emergency here would be if Ben called me one day and said, look, the whole Stratechery team is in Horizon workrooms. We're waiting on you. Put on the meta headset that we sent. I would put it on, but that's really the only time I would feel the need to put on a meta headset. So no, we. I don't think we need to send you one. Doesn't 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 Alice have one? Alice does have one. Yeah, she she has like an older Oculus though. I, I think there are, there have apparently been innovations in the last three years. So I'll have Allegedly. to investigate. <laughs> yeah, um, number five, AirPods. If I didn't have headphones and needed to record the podcast, I would use AirPods. And then number six, Frontier I, 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 Airlines. I just, I just, I, I, just <laughs> I, I have nothing to say. Look, just too much disgust. Oh man, I considered reading an an email that I had missed that we got like a month ago. Somebody emailed in and was like, "I stand with Sharp on the AirPods take." We got a lot <laughs> of people hating on me for the AirPods take, but we did have one person. I think his name was Nick. D- does does Nick work for the Onion? Did he see <laughs> oh, that wrote boy, that profile? Oh Look, I have no idea who wrote that profile, um, but my mother-in-law, actually, she was listening to the podcast and was like, so somebody wrote a, a profile of Andrew? Can you guys send the profile? <laughs> so it was pretty great sending her the Onion article. Um, number six, not really tech, but Frontier Airlines and Spirit Airlines are two airlines that I will only take in the event of a true emergency because I've had so many bad experiences with them over the years. Do you have any additions to this conversation, Ben? The airlines is a good one. I uh, completely, completely agree with you on that. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, I think getting word in was good. I mean, I, I was going to say, you know, probably it definitely would have been Windows back in the day, but then I went to Microsoft and like the funny thing with the Microsoft stuff is when you're at Microsoft, you use all their products in like the ways they were intended to be used. Yeah. And like when you use all of them together, it's like, oh, this actually makes sense. It's pretty great, right? <laughs> like like it t- turns out mixing and matching uh, can, can cause messes. Um, but yeah, pr- if I had to switch to using Windows or maybe a funnier example, like doing Linux on the desktop, um, at this point, and this is like one of my personal conflicts. Like I, I have a very big philosophical problem with like Apple's approach to the App Store and antitrust and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And and then so every couple of years, like you know, I should just use Android. And then like two weeks later, I run kicking and screaming back. Like <laughs> I mean, basically, whatever tech that and this is definitely I'm in my old man stage here. Whatever tech I use that works, I have no desire to to change it. Now I will definitely look for stuff that makes what I do better. But I have a very difficult time making philosophical. I'm going to make a change for like philosophical reasons. Like, like I have my workflow figured out. I don't run betas of stuff because like, look, these are tools for me to get my job done. I don't need to be debugging an audio driver to figure out why I can't record a <laughs> podcast. Right. Like, like uh, in fact, on Macs, I always run a, a, an operating system release behind. I, I, I like get, oh, wow. you know, t- take a full year to sort of iron out all the problems. So if I had to be on the cutting edge or use something new, um, which I do, I mean, I do sometimes if something comes along, like, wow, that tool is exactly what I need. But 
I mean, I'm definitely, needless to say, much more willing to to try new things than you. I yeah. think what I might put on this list is Tesla. Ooh. I do not have a Tesla. I have no desire for a Tesla. I have friends who have Teslas. Uh, I feel like if I'm going to spend all that money on a car, I'd like the car to be nice. <laughs> and, huh. uh, that the, and honestly, that's one of the... Define maybe, nice there, though. What do you mean by that? Like not have like mismatched panels or like little okay. weird oddities or like have a, a, a luxurious feeling sort of interior to a car. Like the, again, it's it's like a, it's like a tool and I would like to have a, like, I'm definitely a believer in the buy something nice, use it for a long time. My car at this point is like six years old. Mm-hmm. I don't drive that often. It's not, it's a nice car. And like, why would I get a new one? Uh, the, and I just I don't want to deal with stuff <laughs> like I want I want stuff to Fair. work and work for a long time. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I the this question did come fly in very late, uh, but it's hilarious that it came in late. And you could instantly generate a list of like eight things. Uh, and very you know what? I, I really should have had PCs on there. Like if I were forced to work on an IBM ThinkPad, I mean. I, it oh, would be awesome, very though. low on my do list. Lo- do, do love the nib. Oh God, I just couldn't do it. Um, is the nib the little mouse in the in the center of the keyboard? Yeah, the, the little little yeah. red dot. That that's the only thing that ThinkPad has going for it. But no, the ThinkPads are great. I think the hardware is great. Like they're they're durable. I'm just saying, after like just... 15 years on a Mac, I couldn't switch back to Windows. Like it just would be a, a non-starter for me, unless like literally I had no other options and had to use a computer that day. Um, but I I appreciate the pro tip from you on the the Mac OS side. I, I'll wait a year and let them iron out the kinks next no, time you don't they need push people an update. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. <laughs> um, all right, moving down the list here. Yaw says, do you think premium TV content from HBO, Netflix, or Disney will ever release simultaneously in movie theaters? I know HBO has done this in the past with select episodes of Game of Thrones, but why wouldn't they make this part of a diversified revenue stream? It seems like a way to monetize costly television slash streaming productions from super fans willing to pay to see them in theaters. Do you have thoughts here, Ben? Well, some stuff is happening here. So Netflix, quite interestingly, a couple of people have pushed back on, on some of our recent Netflix conversations to say they are experimenting with time releases. Like I think like the British baking show, like they, they released a couple and then a weekly thing. And then obviously Stranger Things, they split up into two seasons at least or two parts. And then probably the most interesting one is they're doing this Chris Rock special, which is going to be live. And then will be available Whoa, on the I service. Didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And then um, the other one that's super interesting is Disney is putting Andor on, I, I think, ABC, the first two episodes. And and then it will be available. You have to subscribe to Disney Plus to watch the rest, um, all of which makes complete and total sense to me. And the most interesting company here is uh, HBO or Time Warner Discovery. Mm-hmm. They are, I mean, it's funny because. Uh, David Zaslav uh, has become like the Elon Musk of the, the industry. Like everyone's decided he's terrible and everything he does is stupid. 
And I kind of feel like on an island here. I think everything he's doing is smart. It makes a lot of sense. And I'm like, maybe I'm going to get this totally wrong. But one of the things he's done, I mean, one of the reasons he engendered all this antipathy is he canceled a bunch of movies, including, uh, you know, Yo Cat Girl and like a, a bunch of a bunch of other ones. And part of his reasoning was like all these middling movies, particularly the ones that go straight to streaming, are a total waste of time and money. They mm-hmm. don't actually drive new subscribers. They don't stop people from churning. And that seems to be true. Like it seems to like it's like number one, the internet broadly, you you benefit from either being super big or being super cheap. Like that's just the yeah. way the internet works in general. Number two, it seems obvious from a normie perspective. If there's a movie in a theater, I'm gonna be more interested in seeing that movie on a streaming service because like I, it's it's like in my head. It's like oh yeah, when I and when I sit down on Friday night, see what's on there. Oh yeah, that was in the theaters. I should I should check that out. Whereas you see some random sort of thing, it's like eh, you know scroll scroll by it. Like there is a payoff to being in different places, and the fundamental economics of content are you you spend a lot of money to make it once, and then you can reuse it again and again. Mm-hmm. Why would why limit yourself? Use it in a theater, then use it in premium TV, then put it on an airplane, then put it – and it turns out that's what they did for decades, right? Yeah. Like this this idea – there's it, – it's weird, but there's an aspect where you can, as a business, be too customer-centric where, sure, some people would like to have every movie released on, on their TV on day one mm-hmm. on a streaming service, but – you charge for stuff because it's differentiated and people are willing to pay. And that's how you survive as an ongoing concern. I think I've made this analogy before. Would people like it if trajectory was free? Sure. I'd get more readers. They would come in and do it. I also would like to make a, make a living and to be able to build an ongoing concern. And Oh, by the way, be able to watch new shows like sharp tech or sharp China or whatever it might be. That depends on going against what consumers want in the short term making them pay for stuff. But ideally it's a win-win for everyone because they get stuff that's valuable to them and I can grow and expand and invest in new things. And why would that not apply to entertainment? So yeah, uh, I think the industry, HBO for sure is going to be pushing this. I mean, are they going to start releasing Game of Thrones simultaneously in theaters? Maybe not that, but I think what you're going to see broadly is a real reevaluation of different ways of releasing content, different payoffs, different ways to monetize. Windowing, I think, is making a comeback. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So this is pretty embarrassing, but I'm going to admit it here on the show. My favorite thing... I mean, your standards are so low, and I have no (laughs) idea what this is going to be. My favorite thing that Netflix You started a tech podcast and immediately admitted to disliking AirPods. So, I mean, I I have no idea what you're going to say here. Please continue. As far as Netflix and premium TV is concerned, my favorite thing that they do, I love it even more than Drive to Survive, is The Crown, the series about the queen over the last several decades. Yeah, you're right. That is more embarrassing. It's it's really embarrassing. But look, (laughs) if they put it in theaters, I would go watch like part one, five hours of the crown, part two, two weeks later, the final five hours of the crown. Like I would go do that. And one of the things I find pretty interesting about the streaming wars is there's this flood of content, but all of it feels pretty disposable. And I do think that this question. Yeah, you need to make it feel special. Exactly. Like if I'm watching something on my couch, 
it's just another item in an avalanche of content and I watch it, I enjoy it. And a day or two later, I'm not thinking about it and and we'll never have cause to think about it again. But when I'm going to a movie theater with friends or family, like I bought tickets to go see that Netflix movie glass onion in a theater. And I'm going to go with my family the night before Thanksgiving. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And when I do that, the content becomes an experience. So when I watch it in the future, I'm not only watching the movie, but I'm remembering like where I was, who I was with when I saw it. And all of it just feels a little bit more durable than this like, all right, we're putting this on Netflix and everybody's going to watch it and talk about it for maybe a day. And then like none of that stuff ever gets revisited. It's one of the big challenges with streaming services. It's like, how do you make people care about this over the long haul? And I do think that some of the people who who let pure numbers drive their thinking on issues like this, they miss the potential that is out there for like creating longer term investment from fans. Yeah, there's um there's a famous Steve Job quote that that about, you know, some people, the other people in the industry try to sell feeds or speeds, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Feeds or speeds, I should say. And and we're, you know, the insinuation that Apple is different and they're, they want to sell sort of the overall experience and the what it feels like to use a product and all those sorts of things. And it's obviously true. And, and you see this mistake all over the place. Like sports is an excellent example. The reason why the analytics folks, like, sure, back in the day when no one looked at any numbers, was there a correction and an arbitrage opportunity to look at numbers? For sure there was. Are the people who want 47 reviews to get every call right and to analyze every single shot and do X, Y, Z and dispose everything down to spreadsheets? Is that entertainment? No, it's an entertainment product. It's something that's interesting. What's great about basketball is it's so resistant to mm. analytics at the end of the day. Like you see the most analytics for teams just end up losing in the playoffs again and again. Because there's something else that goes into basketball that is essential to winning, that is about teamwork, that is about drive, that is about intangibles, that is about hitting clutch mid-range shots. And and it can't be measured, right? And and it's the stuff that can't can't, be it. Yeah, you also, it's, it's difficult to apply analytics that work really well in the regular season to your strategy in the playoffs because it's it's very different. That's right. But this is this is what happens is, is you get a strategy that seems to make sense. Then you apply it everywhere and you lose you lose the human judgment. That actually is what 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 makes things great. I mean, just to go back to that open door interview I did last week. I think one of the one of the things I was sort of pushing Eric Guan is by all accounts, open doors pricing algorithm is is works pretty well, work better than Zillow. They do a good job. But all that pricing is relative to like one house versus another house. And the macro question of what's going to happen when the Fed raises rates, how quickly it's going to change, is a purely human function. Like you, like it's a judgment call. Like, like, and data and algorithm is all backwards looking. And I, I, I think you just see this in space after space after space, where there is a short term gain from reducing things to numbers, and you find efficiencies and things that exist. But real greatness real success, real whatever it might be, at the end of the day, comes from realizing and understanding that actually there are distinctions. There, Like there is judgment. There is things that, that can make a difference. And to your point, uh, you know, in content, 
yeah, some content, having filler content that you just churn out is great. It's actually, it, it actually is a very valuable thing for a business. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the actually I have an analogy to it, to a question I want to get to earlier. You need different types of stuff, but you also like how many people, it, it sounds so cliche and, and silly, but like when that Avengers, you know, the, the Avenger, whichever the first one was, the, the final one with the, the, the finger snap. Infinity it, or something. Yeah. Infinity Wars. Yeah. We're real, real, real fanboys here, <laughs> but it wasn't just that there was the build up to it. It wasn't just that you had the IP that you're harvesting. It wasn't just that, you know, th- there was a surprising ending. It was that you were sitting in a theater and everyone just like flabbergasted. Right? Exactly. Like, There's that, a communal like, aspect to it that elevates it and makes it more meaningful for people. And it's hard to measure that sometimes, but it's a it's definitely a real phenomenon and it, it yeah. should factor into business decisions. Well, and I think this is a, a real issue for Netflix as far as like, they want to build franchises. They want to have stuff that's durable, right? Uh, because, you know, franchises are super valuable, not just because you monetize them lots of other places. But also, you uh, it gives you negotiating power versus talent because, mm-hmm. like the the actual IP is more valuable than the talent order might be. It gives you uh, a, a sort of a sustain like it, it's it's guaranteed customer acquisition because they already know what it is. But you generate IP not just by making a good show. You generate IP by delivering an experience, a memorable experience. Why do people endure? After garbage Star Wars release, after garbage Star Wars release, until they get to Andor, which is pretty great, uh, because so many people, particularly like the you know people that are in their forties and fifties, they retain the sense of wonderment of walking out of the theater and like that was so cool, like that yeah. was so cool, and it's maintained the value of this franchise despite Disney dumping all over it for like forty years. It's it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, well, and the only other pushback i would have to the zaslav conversation i do understand trimming the fat and and looking at certain projects that just aren't really going to move the needle aren't going to drive audience to your platforms it's also very difficult to make that decision without giving certain shows room to breathe like it took a lot of a lot of people a long time to really pick up on the wire and, or Game of Thrones, to be honest. Yeah, Game of Thrones is another great example. So it, you just have to be very careful as you make those decisions. And I think when people look at Zaslav and, and lash out at him, their concern is that he's not actually being that careful about the way he's making yeah. the decisions. And, Which is very reasonable, but this is all, I mean, but this is a Netflix, has been a Netflix issue too. I mean, I, and I think for Netflix, it's actually in some respects been, been worse because like if you dive into the Netflix archive and you find a show like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then boom, it ends after two seasons. Like, oh, well, that's yep. like, like, why would, why waste your time? Why bother going through the Netflix archives? I think there's a, there's a brand sort of date uh, impairment that happens when your expectation for going into the Netflix archive is that it's going to be a half, a half finished show. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't it be better in the long run if you went to the archive and you're like, well, I'm going to find stuff in here. And yeah, there's no new releases I want, but I, I will just find some random show and it's going to at least be a, have, have a satisfying ending. That just doesn't happen. Yeah, well, and I think they do that in part because you have to pay cast members more the longer it runs. And so yep. it's it's not a great strategy, um, if, at least if you're an artist. Uh, but I, there is a, a series that's exactly like that. Patriot on Amazon Prime is supposed to be really good. 
but it only has two seasons and every episode is an hour long. And so I just like can't justify making the investment in it. And I feel guilty about it, but it is what it is. Um, to keep it moving from streaming to consulting, Wit says, longtime fan of you both and really enjoy the new bundle of podcasts. I have a bit of an odd question, but I was reading Walter Kiechel's The Lord of Strategy about the founding of management consulting and the rise of quote unquote strategy as a discipline. Lords of strategy. There are a lot of management consultants. Okay. okay. Yeah. The Lords of strategy. And it made me curious. How does Ben think about strategy consultants? Are they valuable? Should you build these functions in-house or bring in one of the named firms? Does he think of himself as some kind of superhero version of a strategy consultant? I hope you don't think of yourself that way. I do love the idea of you stepping into a phone booth and coming out in like a strategy (laughs) consultant cape as you sit down to write Stratechery every day. Um, What do you think here, though? I think I'm the wrong person to ask. I mean, there is a... The, the closest we are to management consulting beyond my phone booth ex- escapades mm. is your spouse, who is a, is a consultant. Well, I mean, what does she think about this? So I forwarded Wit's question to Alice, my wife. She's a management consultant at Accenture. And honestly, her reaction surprised me. I, I thought that she'd be thumping her chest, defending the honor of management consultants But she actually came back with some takes. She said, and I'm reading verbatim now from a text message. She said, there are two types of management consultants, strategy consultants and consultants who help companies implement new strategy. Accenture does both. I'm focused on implementing strategy. The consultants at the hoity-toity consultant firms usually do only strategy, and they look down on anyone who's focused on execution. It's considered cooler and more prestigious to be in strategy. I just don't think pure strategy is very useful. You can have the best strategy in the world, but if you can't help me execute, why am I paying you? So taking some shots at McKinsey and Deloitte and I don't know. No, no, Deloitte is implementation. The big three are, are, see, no, I know way too much about this. Uh, The big three are uh, McKinsey, Bain, and BCG. Uh, uh, Those are the the hoity-toity trio, as it were. There you go. It came down to uh, BCG or Accenture for Alice, and she went with Accenture. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I, that makes sense to me, but I, I know less about this world than you do, and I've never read The Lords of Strategy, so... I don't know. How how do you value the role of, of a strategy consultant? Yeah, I, I think, well, her distinction is a very important one. That's exactly where I would have started. And I actually think there is a lot of value and it makes a lot of sense. Like the Accentures and Delights of the world, like there's stuff that you need to do as a company that's not your core competency. And maybe you only need to do it once or you need to get something off the ground. And often this is IT related or some technology. You say, oh, everyone's a technology company these days. Like, well, no, actually they're not. Um, like, so there's, I mean, you definitely have te- technological aspects. Uh, but it, IBM has a big consulting arm that does, you know, is very IT focused. And uh, and so that that I think has tremendous value, makes a lot of sense. It, it often, you know, are they particularly good at this stuff? No, people in tech will look down on it uh, in like the, the quality. But the reality is there's not that many, you know, folks that are super good at this in the world. And it's really mm. helpful to be able to bring someone in and help with these sorts of things. 
within sort of like the MBA business school world, uh, you know, for sure, the prestigious rules are the, are, are the hoity-toity trio, the, the, the McKinsey, BCG, and Bain, because you don't have to do that implementation stuff. You get a do strategy. Yeah. And I, I actually completely agree with Alice's take. The reality is, is that in the role of strategy is the role of that's the CEO's job. And so either number one, you're dealing with an incompetent set of management that can't figure out their strategy. And that's like the ideal case from a management consultant perspective, because then you actually have an impact on strategy. Congratulations. You're doing what you think you're doing. The problem is you're doing it for a company that's probably terrible because they don't have a CEO that can do strategy. (laughs) Yeah. Number two is you're being brought in as a pawn in an internal political game game to drive things to a direction that the CEO knows they should go, but he needs someone to actually build up the evidence and the data and all this sort of stuff because he mm-hmm. doesn't have sufficient political capital to sort of get that done himself. Or you get to come in and do layoffs. Congratulations. You get to ruin people's lives. I hope you, you're you proud of yourself, right? Well, like well the, consultants the, can also insulate you from backlash, right? If, if Yeah, that's right. No, it's hey, what McKinsey said to do. Yeah, it's, it's like... Great, you you you've you've contributed to the decline in accountability in our society. I you know congratulations, <laughs> right? Um, so I, I do it, you know I say this a little bit tongue in cheek. Number one, because I have a lot of friends. I, I know a lot of strategy consultants. Number two, there is an aspect of strategy where uh, strategy is all strategy. It's not. I'm not doing any implementation. I I do think that's why I value and it's important that I'm actually building my own business. And, you know, helped bring the subscription model to the world and now working on podcasts because I think there is an aspect of getting your hands dirty and like is useful and relative that also doesn't have anything to do with like I I do sit on the side and say meta you should do this Google you should do this right Twitter you should do this and you know so I, I recognize that weakness and limitation there that said one thing that's been really interesting. I started out knowing no one, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I had a few hundred followers on Twitter. Like I, and so Strickery was completely on the outside, just me giving my takes, right? On, on, on X, Y, Z. And one of the weird things I've had to navigate is now I know everyone, right? Like, like, and I can get access to whoever. And part of that has been a business model question, like how do I leverage that? And so that's why I've invested in like the Strickery interviews and having the podcast. It's like, well, okay, I'm going to. My whole thing is I'm I'm an outsider. So if I do get inside access, I'm not going to use that to inform my stories. No, all my takes are mine. I don't like I want to stay super true to that, but I will try to open the door to my readers. So when I do interviews, I don't do interviews for snippets. I'm like, I only do an interview on the condition that I can release the whole interview as a transcript, as a podcast, because like, I'm like, look, if I'm getting access to you. All my mm-hmm. readers get access to you. That's sort of my rule. And, and so that's been one thing out of business a- access. But number two is it's funny. You will get a lot of – I will get pushback from uh, VPs, senior VPs, like that sort of level, and they're disagreeing with me, and sometimes they'll get very upset uh, about XYZ. I never get that from CEOs. Even And what I think is the reason is they – no, they don't have any illusions that I know what's going on in their company. Of course, they have much better information. I'm not, I might be sure I might be missing something or not be aware of XYZ, which sure. the VP in charge of that data is very eager to make sure that I know because he wants to make sure that I'm, you know, portraying his business correctly. Everyone in a CA's world is kissing up to, to him or her, right? Mm-hmm. They're telling them what they want to hear because it's, it, it, that's just the human condition. They want themselves to look good. They like, they want to get a promotion. They want to keep, keep going forward. And, 
what I found again and again and again with all different personality types, with all different kinds of company is they're so thirsty for someone to give some sort of outside viewpoint where their paycheck doesn't depend on like yeah them, right? And so even when I'm totally wrong, they're never upset about it. It's very, it's been just it's really interesting. The difference between a VP feedback and a CEO feedback it could not be more different. And I think they're it, 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 the, the best possible manifestation of a strategy consultant is that mm-hmm. it's like, look, I, I need someone whose interests are actually not aligned with me to come in and give some sort of viewpoint on this, to investigate some sort of space, to 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 like just because I feel like I'm not getting what I need to get from my organization, not because they're bad people, not because they're not qualified, but because the incentives are wrong. And I need someone with different incentives to come in and look at a situation. And, and that, that's the sort of best possible manifestation of where strategy consultants can make a difference. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of cynical applications of strategy consulting across all sorts of different businesses. But I'm glad you said that because I was going to come back and uh, apologize for giving short shrift to the strategy people. I I, I like imagining the consulting world as like the sharks versus jets with strategy and implementation. But there is value to the strategy side because like the closer you are to something, the harder it is to retain perspective and, and have a good sense of like, what the bigger picture looks like, what it should look like. And so bringing in an outsider to provide his or her own thoughts um, can be really useful just as an exercise to sort of think about the direction you want to take things. And to your point, it is difficult to know as an outsider some of what is going on. It's a real challenge. I experienced that when I was at Grantland. Like there were all these people reporting on what Grantland should do and everything that is going wrong there and like the outside reporting was almost uniformly wrong and it was really eye-opening for me in like my mid-20s to see how many people could get it wrong and sort of distort the reality of what was happening behind the scenes so there's there are certain things that you can never know unless you're on the inside but I do think having that independent perspective can add a ton of value in terms of like what the shape of a given business should look like. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's probably an aspect where, you know, is it a net positive for society that we all these, you know, very smart, gifted, driven people uh, flitting basically from job to job, which is like, it's like, I don't want to commit. So I'm going to be a management consultant. Right? <laughs> there is definitely an aspect to that. Like that's sold as one of the benefits. It's like, look, you can work on a different project every year. And it's like, yeah, is that like, it's kind of nice though, to like settle down and work on one thing and build something. Um, So yeah, there's like with, with all this stuff, there's, there's, there's pluses and minuses for sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I support, I support Alice in her, in her, uh, you know, standoff against the management consultants. And I always, I've always appreciate just having that little chip on the shoulder. I can definitely relate to that. There you go. All right. Well, to keep it moving, Chris says, there's been talk about the NBA a few times on Sharp Tech or Dithering. You talked about how to make an 80-game season work. I don't remember having that conversation. I definitely would not. I, I think I, I'd be much interested to talk about getting a 60-game season to work or a, like, even shorter. I mean, it like could the, have been uh, 60, yeah. Yeah. Well, I so, guess that's the minimum. You have to probably have to play every team twice. So that'd be the... Play every team twice would be perfect. Yeah. Chris says his preferred solution would be a league rule that no player can play more than 50 games of a regular season. This would rest the best players 
get young players on the court so they can develop their game and make the regular season more interesting. Gonna have to reject this suggestion. Yeah, I think that's a terrible idea. The whole, the whole problem is you like the big player that you want to see the best players. Why why would you want to limit them? The the re- reason to reduce games is I mean one of the reasons I wanted to, I'm going you know I'm going to a couple of Bucks games next week is I know I need to get two games in because I want to make sure you get at least one with Giannis right and mm. and that that kind of stinks. It, it's it's uh um it, whereas if there were only two games a week or there were, you know, a set number, the likelihood of the best players playing is higher, which is a win for everyone. I don't see any win in limiting the best players in playing beyond potentially any prevention, but teams do that on their own. Uh, yeah. The NBA's real sort of real fundamental problem. And it's a problem for a lot of, is they came up in a world where the best way to earn more money was through quantity. Uh, you started out getting more people to come to games because you make, you know, the more games you have, the more people can come. You make more money at at, at, at the, the, the ticket booth. Then you had the RSNs, more inventory, fill up time, stop people from turning from the cable bundle. You can charge a lot for that capability. That's great. We are in a world, this goes back to your streaming point, of absolute content abundance. There is games everywhere constantly. And one particular game is not special. Mm. Again, the NFL is the obvious contrast here. Like there's only 16, now 17 games in a season. They're all, it's what it's all at a set time relatively, <laughs> but still even, even when they've expanded, it's still a set time and it's an event and it's important exactly. and well, that makes it drastically more valuable. But the, the problem is the entire cost infrastructure and revenue infrastructure of the NBA is predicated on there being 82 games because of the, the, the ticket concessions, all that sort of stuff. And also because of the RSNs and, Everyone, I think, agrees from players to ownership to management. The NBA would be better with fewer games, mm-hmm. but no one knows how to get from A to B. I mean, actually, if I were a a, a, a trillionaire, this I would wa- I would this is what the money needs to be spent on. Look, I'm going to make you all whole. You're not going to decrease your revenue. We're <laughs> going to completely what Elon redo. Could have done. Use no, that instead 50 of billion, buy all 30 teams. That's what I want you to do. And then say, we're changing the schedule, privatizing. That, yeah, we're going to change the schedule. We're going to you know have set days of the week, like Tuesday and Friday, and a feature game on on, on Saturday or something like that. Right? If yep. you always know where the NBA is on or X Y Z, there's not that many games. We're going to and we're we're going to have real harsh penalties on players sitting uh, or whatever they might be. So you're always going to have a star player that's playing, and we're gonna and it'll be okay though because you're playing fewer games. And we think in the long run this is going to drastically increase the value of the property. It's going to be exclusive content. We're going to get it back on broadcast TV because so we can get younger kids you know involved. We're going to do things to shorten the game. We're going to get rid of. Uh, live ball timeouts. I've, I, I I could go on for hours on all the changes <laughs> I would make. And then once I do that and I increase the value of the league and get over this valley, through this valley of losing revenue, yeah. then I will sell all the teams off and make a big profit. There you go. I, I support that plan wholeheartedly. And it dovetails with the discussion of Netflix and HBO and theaters that we had earlier. It's That's like, right. You, you want to create an event, and it's really difficult to do that with the current version of the regular season. And I, it's so funny that you raised that idea of just buying all 30 teams because that was going to be my answer. We got another question about a uh, CEO of, of a public company and their responsibility to balance short-term profits with long-term growth ideas and investment. 
And right now, Silver is like a CEO of a public company where like he has to answer <laughs> to shareholders and his hands are tied, even if he knows what the right answer is. And so there has to be a workaround. I hadn't considered the idea that somebody could just throw like 50 to $70 billion at the league and take it all private. Again, this I, I don't is think that's actually, I don't think that's actually possible, but yes, that, that's, it is what, I mean, it's also a challenge in the NBA because it is a partnership. Like there's a question here about like, how can NBA teams trade? Well, that's, it's collectively bargained. Like there, there's a, you know, that, that is just part of the rules and the players agree to that, mm-hmm. but that all has to be agreed to. And, and the players, it, it's a really, it's not a traditional union. I, I, it's really annoying when people apply like union type rhetoric to players who are making tens of millions of, do- of dollars by basketball. It, the, and the reason it's not a union isn't just the money involved. It's because they are the product, right? Well, yeah. In a very tangible sense, but they need the NBA. Like there's a high degree of interdependence. Like the, the traditional unions came along when workers were disposable, right? We just need someone on the assembly line. It could be anyone. That's obviously not the case in the NBA. Like it's just, it couldn't be more different. And it's kind of weird that the NBA is, is, a quote-unquote union, it, it's really about this collective bargaining and the fact that for a league to work, we need a common set of rules. We need to basically, I mean, baseball famously has the antitrust exception, right? So that mm-hmm. you can like, like you can act collectively, you know, for the greater good of of the league, particularly from an economic perspective. And so that's the challenge in making any changes: is players get fifty percent of the revenue, they have no desire or inclination to lower that, and. Even more so because their careers are short. Well, their careers are short. If you're retiring at 35, it's like, why am I betting? That's the star player, right? Most players wash out much earlier than that. Yeah. So it's a real challenge, and we're going to have to seek out a benefactor somewhere along the way. Maybe it'll be you, Ben. Maybe Stratechery Plus will hit it big enough that we can buy (laughs) all 30 teams in the NBA. Um, I'm satisfied Stratechery has has hit it big enough that I can get a couple tickets a year. That's (laughs) that's fine with me. Um, We'll close out with this. I was going to ask you to name the tech that you're most thankful for of that corny-ass Thanksgiving segment. But we were talking about it and arrived at a different question. Group chats are the tech you're most thankful for. So now I ask you, what makes a successful group chat? What do you have for the for the masses? Yeah, this is something I've, I, I, I've been working on the or working on this in my head for a while, and uh, I, I did put the list together. It's 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 in progress, so I don't necessarily stand by any of that. <laughs> But I do think it's important to understand what makes a successful group chat. I would say I'm in a solid I, – I, I'm in two sort of high-volume uh, group group chats uh, that – and so that, that are very – this applies to in-person groups too. So okay. one of my chats, it's not super active, but – there is a weekly sort of get together and, and that has similar dynamics. That should count for like double the volume if you're all actually getting together in person. Yeah, well, it, it, there is. And I, there's another one I'm in that's been going on for like a decade. Uh, and then we're in one that that's relatively new, but is uh, exceptionally high volume. So <laughs> what do you need for accessible group chat? There's different characters that you see showing up again and again. Mm. So number one, the most obvious one is the high usage player, right? You need like the Allen Iverson or the Russell Westbrook who just get honestly, shots up, man, just getting shots up like they're like, and a lot of the takes are bad. And honestly, the, the takes are often repeated. It's like, yes, we've heard you make that point before, but 
it's just a constant driver of activity. There's always something going on in the group chat, right? And ideally, this person has a thick skin and it can be made fun of because you also need the person who like post things that were already there and then everyone just mocks them. And mm. it works great if that's the same person because it's not just that there's always volume in there, but there's always an opportunity to sort of make fun of the person just constantly, right? And so like <laughs> the, 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 this, this uh, ideally, that's like the superstar where they have, they, have, they have multiple of those qualities together, but you do need both those people. The person that just like repeats himself and gets made fun of and then the person that is posting all the time. So that a super important player. Okay. Number two, you need the benevolent dictator. Uh, th- this is not this is not a <laughs> democracy. You need someone who is clearly in charge, who will tell people to cut something out on the side if they need to, and mm. who will, if necessary, take the nuclear option, which is you never kick someone out of a chat. You start a new chat and don't invite the person. That, oh my god! Have you ever it. had to do that? I mean, yes, uh, wow. it, 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 it's happened. Well, so, well, one of the things that happens is, and this has mostly happened, uh, I've witnessed with this with, with like Bucks related chats, is someone, you have to be very careful about who's the admin and, and can invite people because they'll just start inviting people like crazy, right? Uh, and okay, yeah. You actually, have to be so judicious. the actual, that's a good Well, call. the way you invite people is actually you start a new chat with the new person in it. And then, so that's actually better because then you can revert back to the old chat if the if the new edition sort of didn't work out uh-huh. and it's already sort of in place and everyone's everyone's sort of there. But this has to be like you can't be you, it, this. This isn't a democracy. Like someone has to like be in charge and making these calls. So that's important. yeah. Well, I'll let the listeners guess who the benevolent dictator is in the group chat that I share with Ben. Um. Uh, I've, I've been in different. I've been in different roles in different chats. I'll just put it that way. So wow, okay. uh, number four is. Uh, this is where I am a very high value player in group chats. Uh, group chats work very well when they're 24 seven because ideally <laughs> you wake up in the morning and there's a bunch of stuff there and you, it, cause you're the morning you're, you're, you're susceptible. You're like your, your will hasn't like woken up yet. Your executive function. You do and have better things to do, but you don't have the energy to do them. That's right. So you start scrolling through and then you start responding and now a new cycle <laughs> is restarted. Right. And so yeah. you, you have it. So that, that you have the ongoing, just constant sort of stream. And once you've responded and also, cause it's early in the morning, you probably put something that you might not have put otherwise. Now you have to like defend yourself and you're like, you're in there and, and you're just, you're, you're locked in for the rest of the day. So mm-hmm. now it's, it's going on. Uh, you do need the normie, the conventional wisdom perspectives. The great thing about the group chat I'm in with you is that you are not the normie. You think yeah. you're the normie, but actually someone <laughs> else is definitely the normie. Oh, uh, wow. Um, you can think about about who it is. I, I'm going to be doing that for the next 60 seconds here. But yes, uh, you you always need a normie in any set of circumstances. So that's I, right. I, there's, I there's, there's 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 two more there's two more sort of key, key players. Uh, number one, you need the the person that's like too cool for the group chat that everyone tries to impress. Like, like, like there's a, there's a, it's a certain frisson. Like, he's like, oh, I gotta, gotta, a good take in here. Mm. And this person always ends up being who you wouldn't think it would be. It's just like, uh, wow, it's good, you know, so, uh, that's a consistent quality of the chats. And then the last one is this is the, this is the person you, you least expect. They never post, they post like once a week or once a month, but every time they post, it's so good and it's so insightful. <laughs> And it's like, holy crap, we've been wasting our time typing nonsense. And you're just sitting here just d- d- dropping this take bomb yeah. in there that that's good. And that person's important because they're always kind of in the back of your mind. 
It's like, I need to have good takes because this person might be reading it. It might come in with another take that will just blow me out of the water. And so <laughs> you, you have to have this sort of tension there. So that that's my list. I don't know if you have any additions or, or, subtra- or subtractions. Well, it's a very good list. And yeah, the, the last person you're describing there is sort of like the yin to the high volume guys, Yang. That's and right. The combination that's, you need both. of both no, they're, they're, is crucial. That's right. Yep. Um, the Durant to the high volume Westbrook. Uh, as far as my additions, the only thing I'm going to add is the guy who doesn't read the whole chat and post things that were made fun of 24 hours earlier. <laughs> That's the role you felt. <laughs> literally, Ben accused me of being that guy minutes before we came on to record Sharp Tech here, and I can't argue with it. Because I am absolutely that guy. And no, I'm- that guy's important because there's also other people that don't necessarily read it all. And there were really good jokes. And so that's an excuse to then, uh, you know, make sure the joke got seen, which is well, <laughs> for, for the for the folks who are good at making the jokes, they need an outlet to, to repeat themselves as well. OK, well, in our particular group, there are new parents who are up like all night long with their babies. And then there's also Ben, who's 12 hours ahead of everyone. <laughs> and so the posts go all night long. And um, sometimes I just don't have the energy to go back through in the morning and you know, waste 35 minutes before I start my day. But um, I think that's a, a wonderful taxonomy of group chats and a no, great and, place and to close Just it. to go with the, like, the, the Thanksgiving theme. Um, and this is, it sounds super corny and cliche, but I would say the biggest transformation in my life personally over the last several years, I mean, part of this is the in-person thing. I moved to an area uh, where, where there's, um, you know, in part because of school reasons, but just having groups like is is important and this is important in the context of twitter too you have to be super wary uh of the person who tweets too much because <laughs> number one just just danger zone uh they might, might tweet something they shouldn't but number two uh twitter there was a day and i think a lot of people who do feel very sort of genuinely emotional about Twitter is because there was this time period from 2006 to 2010, 11, 12, where like Twitter was community when you could go there and there'd be conversations and you could listen in on people you, you respected and admired talking back and forth and you could chip in. Maybe this was a thing in tech more than other areas, but it used to be that anyone who was anyone in tech was on Twitter and like they're literally having group chat style conversations on Twitter and you could see people going back and forth and debating something, and they would have long threads. And it was it, – it, you had a similar dynamic, and that is era is so far gone. People are just looking to misinterpret stuff, are looking to take things in the worst possible light, are looking to to say, you know, what about this, what about that, or actually A, actually B. And it, Twitter is – it's a battleground now. And that's part of why Twitter will never be replaced because who wants to actually build that? But the, that community aspect of Twitter was a real thing, and it's and it's it's long since gone. Elon Musk didn't kill it; it's been dead for a, a, a very very long time. But I do that part can exist. I think that group chats is an area where it can exist. Twitter is very useful for group chats because it gives fodder. You can just give. There's always constantly it's a great to make news gathering service. Also, like I, I, there was a question about how we consume news. I get most of my no, news. Which I, from I refer Twitter. to multiple times. Yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, the news thing. I get this question a lot. The reality is, is uh, I'm very 
I, 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 tech meme always is a list of stuff that's going on. I read all the company earnings, but then a lot of Twitter. I'm just reading, consuming information constantly. Mm-hmm. And then when I write about a specific thing, I will spend a big part of my day is just doing a super deep dive and catching up on everything that happened in that space in, in the last few years or whatever it might be, or making sure I understand how something works. So it's a sort of very targeted approach uh, in some respects. But Twitter is phenomenal in just keeping up on stuff. And also, Twitter search is an incredible resource to find links and references to things that you never would have found, particularly with all the modifiers you can use around it to find X, Y, Z. No, Twitter is super valuable, but Twitter is not community. And and I I don't think anything in the public space can be like, because here's the most important thing for, for a great group chat or a great group of friends. The number one thing without question is trust. You, you need to feel safe and, you can screw up or you can say what you think or you can do whatever and people will give you the benefit of the doubt. And when you're in a state of fear, you're not going to get a sense of community. You're not going to get a sense of, uh, you know, feeling like you have allies and people, you know, and, and buddies and whatever it might be. And I, I think obviously this is, you can take what I just said and say, that's why Twitter needs to invest in moderation and needs to be stronger and X, Y, Z. But I know it's fundamentally structurally flawed because it's a broadcast medium. Anyone in the world can respond to you. People hold that up as a great thing. It's also a terrible thing. And putting Twitter in the role it's meant to be, which is really just a broadcast. And yeah, if you want to go out there and do battle, fine, go ahead. But having another place to go for community and friendship, I think has made my life so much better. I am tremendously thankful for it. And I hope that, it's a function that everyone can sort of find for themselves. There you go. Well, I agree with basically everything you said there. And in particular, it's it's difficult to have any sort of trust or any sort of fun, really, posting in public these days because you just never know. And there are certain people who have a, a certain type of brain that are just great at Twitter and and do it constantly and don't think twice about their mentions or anything like that. They're they're awesome and good for them. But I think for the majority of people, like you look at Facebook, for instance, posting on Facebook was a lot of fun in 2008. But now everyone's life is online at least 50% of the time. And, and the consequences for like goofing off and screwing up online are very, very serious. And so as people understand that, it's just much harder to sort of like let your hair down and have fun with people. Um, and I yeah, think from that's a technical perspective, uh, definitely encryption. And I, I always suggest WhatsApp. No, it's all, it, it, it's encrypted. Uh, it's much better at saving where you are in a conversation. So if you wake up in the morning, there's been 40 or 400 messages overnight. You yeah. can actually catch up on them. Uh, it works much better than iMessage in that regard. But also you can set, this is critical, you can set messages to delete after a week. So <laughs> like it just, it, it's there and it's gone. And this is, I think I've talked about this, this is the internet at its best, right? Where ideally I do have an in-person group of people and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Uh, are their interests the same as mine? No, it's a pretty disparate group because our uniting function is location. And yeah. so of course, like, are they as interested in tech or XYZ or sports or MBA? Not, not necessarily, but there is being with people in person is phenomenal. And everyone I think should invest in something make up a hobby. I don't care. Like uh, for us, it's, you know, smoking cigars, which, you know, 
you know what? If I die a few years early because I, I had <laughs> a weekly hangout with people, I, I think I, – honestly, I think the trade-off was worth it. Like the quality of life improvement is is, is so large. Uh, but uh, the internet, like people move around a lot. They travel a lot uh, or, or, or at least in, in my social circles. I've lived in Taiwan. And the fact that I can get a sort of ongoing feeling like I'm hanging out with my friends and can have that – sense and sensation and feeling and then for sure you got to organize at least one annual meetup because in person is important but you can have this ongoing sort of thing it's really the internet it's best it's like you can be anywhere and feel like you're with people you care about and that's that's pretty awesome well a testament to the importance and value of community is a great place to close it out here on the thanksgiving episode and i'm very grateful for the community that has emerged over the last like six weeks we've been doing sharp tech publicly it's been very cool to see how quickly it's grown and i look forward to keeping it going for the uh, who knows how long but certainly we'll be back after thanksgiving and we'll keep <laughs> it rolling from there and um you know we got so many questions that we you just want to last longer than twitter is what you're saying uh, yeah and you know i i don't know twitter's probably not on the way out anytime soon but i still like our chances so We'll see what it turns into. But for now, I hope that all of our listeners have a great Thanksgiving. And Ben, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. And I hope you survive the like 72-hour swing and um, I will somehow retain sanity. I will have uh, – my Thanksgiving will be 20 minutes long because I am uh, flying <laughs> out at like – 1220 a.m. on Thursday, and then I arrive in Taiwan Friday morning. Uh, uh, the things we which do is sad for Giannis, you know? Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, but uh, we are having our Thanksgiving dinner on Saturday. So I, okay. I will hopefully get to do it all. Well, enjoy it Saturday, and we will come back after the holiday with two more episodes. Look forward to all of it. Until then, Ben, go Bucks.